We are in Acts chapter 4, uh, and um, we, we will be going from there. Now, I got to admit, I, I was on Pastor Brad last week because I was really jealous that he got to preach last week's sermon uh, because I still am recovering from Acts chapter 4, verse 19. But Peter said, Peter and John answered them, the authorities, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than, God, than to God, you must judge. But we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I would just advise you to memorize that and meditate on that passage of Scripture because it is highly relevant to our lives in this world today. Anyway, uh, I didn't get to preach last week. I was out of town, and uh, I'm very much looking forward to what I'm about uh, sharing with you what the Lord's laid on my heart this morning. Have you ever been in a situation in life where uh, something happened, and it seemed like it wasn't a big deal, but it was a, it was a very big deal, and it was made a big deal out of? Uh, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, back in school, back in college, um, uh, we had to take an exam, and uh, on a very typical exam for me back in college when I was in my engineering days was uh, three questions, two hours. You have three questions, three questions to answer, and you have two hours to answer them. And of course, they're very long, elaborate problems, and, and uh, it takes some time. And one of the questions they gave us the answer to, they said, here's the question, here's the answer, now get there. Well, uh, uh, it was a very difficult question, and what, what, I, what, what had happened was is that some students kind of fudged their, their work and, and said, and yada, 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 here's the right answer. And other students, uh, like me, I couldn't get, I, I strategically saved that. I said, oh, they gave us the answer. I'll save this question to last. So I did the other two problems first. And then worked on that one, and, and then I, I ended up writing this long, elaborate note, like, I think I've made a math error earlier in this problem, but I don't have time to, but I think if I would have kept going, I would have gotten to the right answer. Well, what had happened, what happened after that was, is that everybody who fudged their answer failed the exam. Like, didn't fail that one out of three questions, they got an F on the exam. And when I say some of the students, I'm talking like over half of the students in the class got, like it took an F on the exam, and the cry went up to the leadership of the school. Why? Why? I only, I only fudged on one problem, but you failed me for the entire exam. And the professors very politely, very patiently said, someday you're going to leave this place, and you're going to design things that could kill people if you fudge. So we're going to teach you now, while you're in school, you don't do that. You don't put something out there in the public, you don't put a design on the road, you don't put an aircraft in the air if you're guessing. Well, that's important, right? All right don't you feel better a little bit about your engineering schools now? <laughs> in the same way, uh, you know, a young man or young woman goes into the military goes through basic training, uh, and the, the government invests hundreds of thousands of dollars, perhaps, in this person, and uh, they receive the training and perhaps even go to their specialty school, uh, whatever, and one day they're put on a, uh, they're given duty to keep watch, 
And during the process of keeping watch, standing guard duty, they fall asleep. Well, no big deal, right? Just tell them, don't ever do that again, and, and, and keep them. You realize you may lose your, you may be kicked out of the military for that. Why? Because if you're the person, if you're the person, especially if it's a combat situation, if you're the person guarding the barracks, if you're the person guarding the base, if you're on the front gate, and everybody's life in that establishment, and they're probably getting some sleep at that, at that late hour, if their lives are in your hands, and you've fallen asleep, it's inexcusable. We're going to see in our text today, uh, we're going to see something that seems like to our eyes, as we read the text and listen to the text, our ears, that this is not a big deal. Ananias and Sapphira, not a big deal. What they did, and, and yet they were killed. They died as a result of it. What's the big deal? We're going to find out. I think it's a big deal. So let's get into the text this morning. <clears throat> this is what we're going to be asking, the big question. How do the events described in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 511 help us to understand, to better understand God and His church? Now, let me just say right at the onset, when people study Ananias and Sapphira, they have a tendency to turn right to Acts chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, and start reading and say, okay, let's study Ananias and Sapphira. But notice, those of you that have an ESV Bible, what is the first word in Acts chapter 5? It's the word, but. And that should clue you in that that's not the beginning of the story. That's the beginning of the contrast in the story, right? But. So in order to do this account justice, you've got to go back. And remember, you've got to go back to chapter 4, verse 32. And you have to also remind yourself, chapter divisions and chapter and verse divisions are not inspired best we can understand, right? They're not inspired. In other words, they weren't in the original text. They were added later. Now, there's a legend to how they were added, but they were added later. And so sometimes the person that added the chapters and the verses, they, um, they started their chapter in the middle of a story, in the middle of an account, uh, erroneously. So there you go. You can't understand Ananias and Sapphira without starting at chapter 4, verse 32. So let's read. Let me just read this first section. I'll read chapter 4, verse 32 to the end of the section. Now the, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, let's stop right there and let's just... This, this story of Ananias and Sapphira that we typically call the story of Ananias and Sapphira really starts here. So there's a, there's a, a positive example that is given 
And then there's a negative example. And so I've kind of broke this down into, into two main sections this morning. And the first one is the nurture in the early church. Okay, now that, Contextually, that's where we're at. The church is just getting started. Uh, the day of Pentecost has just happened. And the, the early church, the very first few believers, along with Jesus' apostles, are just getting going. And, um, and we're, we're now seeing, we've already seen, their, they've begun to witness, right? They've, they've healed, Peter and John healed this man. They, that opened up the door for them to, to be witnesses. You know, Acts 1.8, Jesus said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They started witnessing, and through this healing, they were able to witness to some of the community of Jerusalem. That unlocked the door for them to be able to witness to some of the leadership of the Israelite people and to be bold in their proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. So bold as to look them in the eye, to put their two feet on the ground and look them in the eye and say, this Jesus who you killed, who you crucified, he is the Christ. That's how bold they were. You messed up. And so now we're seeing a little glimpse of the life of the early church. And I've broken this down. Uh, I think the text breaks down into the nurture in the early church and the admonition in the early church. Okay, so the first point is nurture. What do we see in the text? Well, first thing we see is they had unity. They had unity. The text says this. They were of one heart and soul. Now let's just, let's just think about those words uh, Let's think about those words. In the Bible, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, heart, the concept of heart is a little bit different than we think about it today. Most of the time when somebody says, you have my heart, or we're talking about something that's either romantic or more emotional in our culture today. But back in their culture, the heart was the seat of three things. The mind, the way you think, the will, the goals that you have, and the emotion, the feelings that you feel. All three of those concepts were encapsulated in what they called the heart. And they were, the, the early church, it says, was a, were of one heart. They, they shared the same mind, the way they think about life and the way they think about uh, how they should treat one another. They sh- shared the same will. They had the desire to, be, to bear witness, to be witnesses as Christ had commanded them to do. And they had the same they were one in their emotion. What does that mean? Does that mean they all felt the same feelings at the same time? Probably not, no. But what it did mean is that when people were coming to Christ, they were filled with joy, and they shared that in common. And when they shared the gospel and it didn't go so well, they were probably filled with sorrow, and they probably had that in common. So they were, they were one in those three aspects, mind, the will, and the emotion. And then the word soul as it's used here, has to do with the affections or the impulses. The affections, A, affections. So they, they cherished the same things. They cherished the opportunity to serve one another. They cherished the opportunity to love on God. They cherished the opportunity to bear witness to Christ, to other people. They had the same affections. They also had the same impulses. What does, what does that mean? That when they were out and about, uh, you know, you're, you're out and about, you're doing business, maybe you're going to the market to buy some vegetables or whatever, and a gospel opportunity opens. You know, you say, well, how are you today? I'd like to buy these, you know, this asparagus. And the person says, you know, well, my day's not going so well. And a door opens for, for gospel witness, 
And their impulse was to seize upon that, right? So the early church is of one heart, the mind, the will, and the emotion. Of one soul, the affections and the impulses. They had unity. You can, we're not going to turn there this morning, but I put a, a side note there. You can go to Philippians 2, 1 through 11, and there's also there it talks about uh, Christian unity. You, again, you can read that in your own quiet time. But let me just say this before we move on. There's, there's often times, okay, I, I can be, we can be honest with each other this morning, I think, and say that there are many different churches out there that think very differently about the Bible. We see, we understand here at Delaware Bible Church, the Bible to be the inspired and errant word of God. And so it's, you know, it's our final authority. When, we, when somebody says, is, some, is this right or wrong? Well, we go to the Bible and we try to figure that out. But there are other folks that would call themselves believers that don't see the Bible that way, and I've had the tremendous opportunity to talk to some of them recently, and I I count it as an opportunity, but it's also very frustrating because we're coming at God's, we're coming at life through God's Word from two very different perspectives. And one of the things that I've noticed about uh, folks like that is that they're always saying, look, we just need to be unified. We just need it. The church just needs to come together. You guys at Delaware Bible, you can be a little bit separatist. We just need to have unity. And I want to say to you as clearly as I can that when you hear that, you have to ask yourself this, unity around what? I do want to have unity with the, the wider church, but the unity that we need to enjoy is unity in a common understanding of life and God's word, right? To be of one mind, to be of one will, to be of one feeling, to be of one affection, to be of one impulse. Uh, and so when you hear these cries for unity, ask your, just ask yourself the question, what are we unifying around? Just feelings? Brothers and sisters, that will disappoint. We have to unify around the truth of God's Word. The second thing we see in the text is they had tremendous boldness. They had tremendous boldness. Uh, It says, with great power, the apostles, verse 33, of great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brad talked about, Pastor Brad talked about that last week. They were standing in front of the authorities, the very ones that had the ability to do terrible things to them and beat them and imprison them. They They stood before them and said, This is the truth. So they were very bold. Uh, Hebrews 13, 6 says this, So we confidently say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Brothers and sisters, this is an attitude of life that we need to adopt. Because even if we have to stand in front of the authorities, the ones that can jail us or worse, and bear witness to the truth, if they take everything, including our lives. You know, that, that's a winning scenario for us, right? Because then we're with the Lord forever in eternity in heaven, released from this sin-stained world. And so uh, we need to uh, understand that the, the early church operated with tremendous boldness. They also operated, they enjoyed rich blessings from the Lord. Uh, it says, they, great grace was upon them all. That word great is the word that we, te- that we get, the English word mega. So they enjoyed mega grace. 
What does that mean? What does it mean in this context? It probably means something like this. As they were going out and sowing the seed of, of the Word of God into people's hearts, people were coming to Christ, right? Um, as they were pursuing unity within the body, God was blessing them with a good church life within the body. Um, so, you know, again, grace is getting what we don't deserve. Uh, we all deserve death and hell, but we've been liberated from that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And now it seems like God is raining down grace on this early group of believers. Now, all this resulted in selfless care. Okay, and this is the part uh, that's really interesting. Verse 34 says, There was not a needy person among them, for as many were, as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as he had, each as any had need. Now, in uh, Deuteronomy 15.4, there was a, uh, in the Old Testament law, there was this goal that there would be no poor among you, the people of Israel. For the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess. And Israel never quite lived up to that. But in the early church, in that, in that setting of the early church, those that that desire of God's in Deuteronomy expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 15 verse 4 is coming to fruition. The early church is enjoying selfless care for one another. Now, I want to take a, a, a bit of a sidetrack here before we get into Ananias and Sapphira. Some folks will look at a passage like this and say, oh look, the early church practiced socialism. So that's what we should practice today. Let's all sell all of our stuff, bring it to the business office, give it to Jelaine, she'll put it in the bank, and the elders of the church will distribute to any as any of you have need. No, that's not what this text is saying. Not a bit. This is neither a, a, this is neither a command for us to practice socialist, socialistic tendencies within the church, nor is it a, a mandate for us to practice socialism in our society. By the way, uh, I want to say something for, pretty earth-shattering. You know, Christianity can exist in any governmental setup, right? Christianity can exist in a socialistic government. It can exist in a capitalistic government. And every government in between, Christianity can exist. Sometimes it's harder, but it can and does exist. So, let's let's... Uh, we're not talking about socialism here. There's no command in Scripture. This is descriptive of how the early church lived, okay? But this is not prescriptive. There's no command for us to do these things, right? So let, let me give you a, a bit of a diagram here that I think will help because the, the question then rings out, well, what is the Christian way? How should the church operate? How should the church operate? Well, uh, there's... There's kind of two ends of the spectrum here, capitalism and socialism. And if I, if I uh, don't want to, I don't want to offend anybody, but I think that the church doesn't operate in any one of these two isms, if that makes any sense. We are not to sell everything that we have and put it in a common pot. That's not, and I don't think that's what's going on in, in this, in Acts chapter 4. 
Neither are we to work and earn just for our own well-being. I think the Bible bears out in all kinds of different places this idea of open-handed stewardship. Let me just flesh that out just a little bit. In the parable of the talents, Jesus told a parable about a master who went away on a journey and he left his servants to, to mind his affairs. And he gave each one of them some money like as an investment for them to go and use based on their ability. The text says that, based on their ability. To one he gave five talents, to one he gave three talents, to one he gave one talent. We know the story. Uh, the five talent and the three talent person earned more. You know, and when the, when, the boss, when the master returned, they were able to say, here's what I've earned in your absence. And the person with one talent buried that talent in the ground and, and was called an evil, wicked servant. Each one of us in the church, for, for, for a host of different reasons, the way God made us, the, the, the situations that we were individually born into, uh, God has given us each different abilities and different resources, and we should steward those resources to the best of our ability. And recognizing that those resources at the end belong to God, we should hold on to those resources with an open hand so that when a need does arise in the church, and it, and it happens from time to time, uh, someone's home will burn down, or someone will have a major medical event that requires more resources than God has given them. You get the idea. That's when we, practicing open-handed stewardship, take what God has given us stewardship over and share with the community of faith. And so that's the way the church is to be. And can I just say this? I think that's one of the things that marks us out as different from the world. When we treat each other this way, the world will see that and it will be a powerful component to our testimony. Believe me when I say, pastors and elders, we don't want to be asset managers. We don't, we don't want the pressure of having to, to handle and invest all your money all your resources, and then try to figure out what's fair to give to who on what day. We don't want that responsibility. So places like Ephesians 4, you know, uh, let the thief no longer steal, but let him work with his hands so that he'll presumably be able to meet his own needs and be able to have a little excess to share with anyone who is in need. That's the Christian way. You steward over what God has given you stewardship over, and when a need arises in the body... Be ready with an open hand to help meet it. Make sense? I think that's what's going on here. We're going to see a little bit of that in verse 5 as well. See, their faith in Christ completely reoriented their understanding of money. I was in, um, <laughs> they were a caravan community. Let me, let me flesh that out a little bit. They were a caravan community. I was in St. Louis last weekend. Uh, this is what St. Louis looks like. And it's a nice town. I haven't been there since I was a little child. And I remember dry, as a child driving by the arch and mom and dad saying, look, there's the arch. So I did one better. I took uh, the family up in the arch. So that was, that was fun. Um, and there's an elevator that goes up in there. And if you have claustrophobia, just don't even go. Um, but it was, it was fun. But the, down at the, the base of the arch, underneath the ground, there's a museum. And in the museum, it talks about that the arch is the gateway to the West, and it talks about westward expansion of the United States and the Oregon Trail. 
not this one. I think you have to be about my age to get this, but in the early days of video games, there was a video game called The Oregon Trail, and you would very often die of dysentery. No, I'm talking about The Oregon Trail, the westward expansion of the United States. And when I say that we're like a caravan community, this is what I mean. The early days of the United States, as we were expanding westward, people would go, they would pack up all of their belongings in a Conestoga wagon or something like that. They would get themselves a beast of burden or two. They would load up the entire family and they would trek out on this trail to the west. And as they left the settled part of the United States to go westward, they would leave the comfort of and relative safety of those settled territories and traveled through hostile territory for a whole different set of reasons. Wild animals, perhaps Native Americans that saw people encroaching on their land and, and, and wanting to attack, but for a whole host of reasons, uh, dysentery. There was, there was danger and disease as you left the settled part of the United States heading west. And so in order to make it west... And reasoning that there's safety in numbers, there was, you had to take care of each other. You had to share the load. If someone's Conestoga wagon broke down, you needed to stop and help make repairs quickly so that the, the entire wagon train could keep moving. If someone was threatening or something was threatening the safety of the wagon train, that's where the whole idea of circling the wagons comes from, you know, to provide... Uh, to be able to fight off oncoming attackers, you would have to, you would presumably, it would be in your best interest to come to the defense and to promote the safety of the entire group so that your entire group had a better chance of making it westward. Now imagine, imagine that things don't go so well and the journey is taking much longer than anticipated and the, the, the entire wagon train is starting to run out of food, but you've been hoarding food in your wagon People are even starting to starve to death. And then it's discovered that you've been hoarding food for your family and for yourself. It's probably not going to go well. And if, and if for some reason that your family or yourself is excluded from the wagon train, you're probably going to die. And so the Christian community, we need to recognize that we're kind of like that. We're in hostile territory. We're heading towards a final destination, and we need to care for one another. Amen? We need to care for one another. And the example that's given is Barnabas. This is our introduction to this man who will later partner with the Apostle Paul to begin one of the greatest church planting expeditions ever. And here's what we learn about him in his very beginning introduction. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the Apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Cyprus is an island in the Mediterranean Sea, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, the Old Testament law says that the Levites aren't to own land. So why does, why does Barnabas, the Levite, own land? Well, we don't know. Perhaps by this time, everything is so broken in Israel that they're not even following the Old Testament law anymore. Uh, we're not told. Why did, why did uh, Barnabas grow up in Cyprus? There's a long and complex history there of some Israelites being exiled to Cyprus for a while and then coming back. Perhaps he was one of the, that group. 
It's difficult to say for sure, but here's what we know about him. When a need arose, he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I put in your notes Philippians 2, 19 through 30, and, and just, just a reminder that we are to look to other Christian examples as we live this life of how they lived that can encourage us. And Timothy and Epaphroditus are listed there in Philippians 2, 19 through 30. So this is the early church. This is the, this is the positive example. This is the nurture. They're unified. They're bold in their witness. They're experiencing rich blessings from the Lord, and they're practicing selfless care for one another. And then we get to chapter 5 and the word but. And here comes the counterexample. And here we see admonition in the early church. Sorry for the question mark. I meant to delete that. Admonition in the early church. Let's read it. Chapter 5, verse 1. But... A man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, so she knew, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. See the contrast? Barnabas brought the whole thing. These guys kept back apart. But Peter said, and can I just, I'm just going to tell you this now so uh, you're not left wondering. I have no idea how Peter knows this. I have no idea. Maybe the Holy Spirit told him. I have no idea how Peter has this, this knowledge, but somehow he got it. Verse 3, But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained, in, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? After it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. This is like a horror movie. When the young men came, they came in, they found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay. This is, this is weird. This is strange. But let's, let's get into it here. First of all, again, same as in the previous verse, there are some insights here to property rights. Um, after Ananias sold this property and brought only a... a a little bit of the proceeds, some of the proceeds, and laid it at the apostles' feet, Peter said this, while that property, while it, verse 4, remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? What's Peter saying there? He's saying, this property belonged to you, Ananias. You could have done with it whatever you wanted. Even after you sold the property, that money was yours. 
you could have done with, with, with it whatever you would have liked. So what's the, what's the issue here? Well, the issue seems to be this. The issue seems to be that Ananias and Sapphira presented themselves as though they had sold the property and were, and were laying the entirety of the proceeds down at, Jesus, at the apostles' feet. But they, they were presenting themselves that way, but had kept back a portion and, and never said it. I, think it. I think this would be a different account had Ananias and Sapphira said, look, we sold the property for 10000 and here's we're willing to contribute 7500 of it. But that's not apparently what was said. Best we can gather from the text. Uh, what was said was, here is the proceeds from the property, O apostles. And they had held some back. Ananias and his wife knew it. So, so Peter says, Ananias, why, have you, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? What was really going on here? Well, well, hang on, let me read Deuteronomy 19.14. You shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which men, have, men of old have set in, in the inheritance that you hold in the land that, you're, that the Lord your God has given you to possess. This is back to property rights. I apologize. I got ahead of myself. Um, a lot of the Old Testament law, if you go back in the Old Testament and read, there's a lot of the Old Testament law that has to do with property rights and uh, handing down a property from generation to generation, even to the point that uh, in something that's very uh, perplexing to our culture, if a man marries a, a woman and they have a piece of property and he dies, she's supposed to marry like her brother or his brother and, and have the first child in that man's name so that that land will be still with that man's family in perpetuity. So there's they had a really good and vivid sense of property rights, and I, and I, and I think that, that we need to, to understand that. This is not a call for socialism, right? There's something else going on here, and what, what is going on here is that Ananias is lying to God, okay? Uh, he's also obviously lying to the apostles because he said this is the money from the field, but it wasn't. He's practicing covetousness, uh, meaning he, he has a desire to enrich himself, right? Hypocrisy, meaning he's, presented him, he's presenting himself as a man who has sold the property and he's laying it at the apostles' feet, but he's put on a mask, right? He's put on a mask and that's not what's going on at all. Um, he has a desire to look good to others. And then I also put a lack of awe of God. Why do I say that? Does Ananias think that God doesn't know what just happened. If he does, if he thinks that by pulling one over on the apostles, he's pulling one over on God, then he doesn't understand really how great God is. Uh, when Tracy and I had the opportunity to travel to Israel in 2011, um, one of the funniest things that I still sticks in my mind is uh, our tour guide said, now, when we walk down the Mount of Olives, just know this, that the same trinket, which at the top of the mountain cost five, uh, $10, by the time you get to the middle, partway down the, the hill, the Mount of Olives, it'll be $7. And when you get to the bottom of the hill, it'll be $5. So just know that going in, uh, you might not want to pay the $10 price. You might want to wait till you get to the $5 at the bottom. 
And uh, the vendor at the top of the hill was very convincing, very convincing. He, he said uh, uh, something along the lines of, uh, you know, buy this for $10, buy this for $10. And said, well, I, somebody said to him, I think it's going to be less expensive down the hill. That's what we were told. And he says, I'm not cheating you. If I cheat you, God will see me. I'm not very good at dance, ladies. You're going to have to help me out. We'll work on my soft shoe. Anyway, Ananias apparently thought that not only was he pulling one over on the apostles, he didn't have an understanding of who God was and that God saw what he, exactly what he was doing. And so the death of Ananias, the immediate death of Ananias signaled, hey, sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal in the community of Christ. Now, I want to keep going because I want to get to Sapphira here. They, they wrap him up, and they, the, the young men wrap him up, and they go bury him. Now, this is a very unceremonious burial. What do I mean by that? If you have a loved one that dies, you want to have a funeral. You're going to call Snyder, and they're going to come, and, and they're going to do a good job of, of uh, helping you grieve and, and having a funeral service. And, and that's the normal procedure. Back in Israel in those days, they had a, a time of mourning. These guys just come in, apparently, wrap him up in some sort of cloth, and, and bury him. Now, keeping in mind that burial in Israel uh, back in those days meant, you know, they had these little tombs that were carved out of the rock, and they would roll a stone away. They would put the body in this cave-like thing, roll the stone back to keep the, protect the body from critters, wait about a year for the body to decompose, gather the bones and put them in a box and, and then bury the box, right? Mark with, a, with a, some sort of marker. And so they probably, these tombs were available. They probably went out and put him in a tomb, rolled the stone. So it's, you know, three hours, it's about right. Carry a body out, put it in a tomb, roll the stone, pay the guy for the use of the tomb, whatever. So then after an interval of about three hours, his wife, Sapphira, came in and Peter asks her the question. He's testing her, right? Uh, did you s sell the field for so much? Now, I don't know if the, um, the so much is the full amount of the field or if it's the smaller amount, but whatever is the case, he's going to be able to figure out whether she was part of this conspiracy or not. And when she answered, then he knew, right? Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? What does it mean to test the Spirit of the Lord? It means exactly what the Israelites did in the wilderness after they left Egypt to see how much they could get away with before triggering God's wrath. They were always testing Moses and testing God. And here we see Peter asking Sapphira, why are you testing the Lord? There's a lesson here for us, folks. In our day-to-day -day lives, what sins have you fallen into the habit of doing and you just kind of don't even think about it anymore, right? You're just, you're just living your life and you're, oh, that little white lie that I told, yeah, I, I've said it so many times, I'm just going to keep on saying it because whatever. Don't fall into that game. Now, I've read some commentaries. I'm going to go back to Ananias here for a second. I've read some commentaries that have said this. Ananias was confronted by Peter. That was very jarring. And he was uh, confronted and he knew he was had. And so that, was, that caused a great amount of stress and anxiety all at once. And he probably just died of a stress-induced heart attack. 
And you could kind of believe that, right? Unless you read Sapphira. I mean, so what Sapphira tells us is that the death of Sapphira is like God is clearly in this, right? This is, it's, it's, you could say that Ananias died of a stress-induced heart attack, but you couldn't say that of two people in such short time. Uh, and so they, you know, God was, was part of this. 1 John 5.16 says this, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that you should pray for that. Just meaning that there are some sins that, 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 I mean, sin is sin, but there are some sins that will naturally take our lives if we uh, engage in them. And this seems to be even more ramped up than that. This is God directly acting to take Ananias and Sapphira. The results of this, the results of this, it says in the text, "And and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all those who heard of these things. The results seem to be that it inspired holiness in the church and assisted with evangelism in the community. Can you imagine going out into the community and saying, uh, I'm uh, Scott, I'm with Delaware Bible Church, and uh, yeah, we're the church that, that that couple just dropped dead in last weekend. Now let me tell you about Jesus, <laughs> right? I mean, I'm being very blunt, but, but um, it probably opened up the door. You know, maybe even uh, while you're getting your asparagus at the market, somebody's like, Aren't you from that church where, aren't you from that group, that congregation where Ananias and Sapphira died? What happened there? Ministry opportunity right there. Now, let me make a few observations before we close. Because this is a, let's just be honest with each other, this is a weird passage of Scripture. This is a very odd passage of Scripture. But let me make some observations. Acts, the book of Acts, is a hinge between the Old Testament and the Old Testament law, and even the time of Jesus, and the New Testament church, and and its development, Acts is a hinge. So what do we have today? What do we have today in the church? If someone is in sin, what can I as a pastor do? Well, first of all, uh, it's clear in, in the church that's been formalized here at Delaware Bible Church who the elders are. And so when we, when we, anyone can do this, but when we go and approach someone, we, we approach them, and we also have the full, the full measure of God's Word, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Recognize that the people in the book of Acts had none of the New Testament. None of it. They had 0% of the New Testament. So while I can go to a brother or sister and say, look, the Bible says this, and this is how you're living, you need to, you need to repent and, and get back to God's Word. They didn't have that. They didn't have that. And so... God, in his sovereignty, decided to demonstrate to the early church the seriousness of sin graphically, using Ananias and Sapphira in in an amazing way to show what his thoughts were on the sin of their sin in the covenant community. Remember, remember. We're, we're on this caravan. It's like we're in this wagon train and we're headed out west all together. It's, the church is kind of like that. And imagine that there is someone that's, that's beginning to, uh, what do I say, break down the community and the fellowship that exists between those of us in this wagon train. We're all in this together. We're trying to get to the destination. We have a mission. And there's someone in the community that's trying to corrupt that. 
It's a big deal. Bigger deal than we probably think. And we need to understand that God's commitment to, holy, God's commitment to holiness is striking in this passage. I'm going to say something, and this is an indictment on me. So I'm going to say this as an indictment on me, but I need you to hear it. We tolerate far too much sin in the church today. We do. Uh, what I, here, here's some things that, that trouble me. If in this church there's someone that we practice church discipline on, and, and you know we say to them, look, you can no longer be part of our community until you repent. We always leave that open. You know, you can repent and we would love to have you back, but you need to admit that you're sinning and turn around. And so when we put someone out, when we take someone and we practice church discipline on them and we exclude them from our community, you know what happens nine times out of 10? They just go to a different church. They just go to a different church and either they're not, they're not asked anything about their past uh, or, um, they never bring it up in the conversation. And that's, that's troubling to me, right? But imagine that you're in that wagon train and your behavior is, is your, by your behavior, you're in danger of being excluded from the community. Like I said, you're, you're likely a dead man. Imagine you're in the wagon train, and there's a, there's a tax coming from outside the wagon train. Wild animals, people, whatever. There's a tax coming. We need to protect each other, and we do that by living according to God's Word. And so, in Matthew 18, where it says, you know, if your brother sins against you, go to him. Tell him your sin between you and him alone. That's not a suggestion. That's not something that you ought to do if you feel like it. We need to be just absolutely committed to building the best, most tight-knit community that we can as a church so that when the hard times come, we can be of one heart and of one soul. Again, that's an indictment on myself. I need to be a better leader. Last thing I'll just share with you is this, and this is my speculation, but Ananias and Sapphira are likely in heaven. Did you ever think about that? We wonder about Judas a lot. Pretty sure that he's not in heaven. He's in hell. But Ananias and Sapphira are likely in heaven. Why? Because their sin has been paid for by the blood of Jesus Christ, and, and we are not condemned to hell because we've committed a sin. Did God use them powerfully to demonstrate the seriousness of sin to the early church community? He did. But did that mean that they lost their salvation? I don't, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing I, my, my theology tells me, informs me, no. My understanding of God's word, God's word informs me that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, anyone who trusts in Jesus as their Savior from sin will be saved. And that's a glorious reality. Okay. The answer to the big question today, what can we learn, is this. This passage helps us to understand God's utter hatred of sin as well as his commitment to holiness among his church. His utter hatred of sin and his commitment to holiness 
amongst his people. Church, that word church is a weird word. In, in Greek, it's ekklesia. It just means congregation or gathering. That's all it means. We're the congregation, the gathering of Jesus Christ, right? Uh, the word church kind of came along later. Okay, possible application. Perhaps the Holy Spirit's already laid some things on your heart. I would work on those things, but in case you're, you want some suggestions, here we go. Number one, be grateful to God for His patience with us. <laughs> uh, imagine me walking up to somebody at church and saying, you know, I, I believe you're in sin. <laughs> Dead. <laughs> that would not be a fun church to go. Nobody would go to our church if that were the case, right? I'm not going to Delaware Bible, man, because you mess up one time. Uh, God is not, this is not, this, this instance is not consistent with the pattern that we see in the rest of Scripture. This is a special occasion, right? Special event. And so be grateful to God with his patience with us on the one hand, but on the other hand, strive towards holiness for the love of God, but also for the love of his church. In other words, as we grow and change and become more like Christ, we become a closer knit community, able to withstand attack from the outside and to uh, work with each other and support each other in reaching our final destination. Eternity with God in heaven, in Jesus' name. And then finally, this is just a re-emphasis, but always remember that unity is a result of shared doctrine. We cannot unify around feelings, folks. We have to unify around what God has said in his word. And then what follows from that, what follows from our common understanding of God's word is a common will to, to work together towards the goals that are laid out in Scripture and common emotion. That is, we rejoice when people repent of their sin and come to Christ, and we sorrow when they don't, together. We are, I believe, I believe that we've, we've, we've lived for a, a quite a long period of time in the United States enjoying the fact that many of the values that we hold dear as Christians were also true of the wider society around us, and that's not true anymore. And so we are going to need each other. The, the more time that passes by, if, if our country stays on this trajectory, if our world stays on this trajectory, and the Bible seems to indicate that it will, there'll be bumps in the road. But we need each other. And our dependence on each other will likely increase over the next period of time. And so what we can do is to be like the early church, to be of one heart and one soul. And we can't do that unless we are firmly grounded in God's Word. Father, we thank you for this morning. Thank you for the time that you've allowed us to open this challenging text and learn and grow from it. Father, I pray that you would help us that these words that were spoken would not just remain on the page, but they would become active in our lives as we seek to put away, put off sin, to be renewed in the thinking of our mind and put on behavior consistent with your word so that we might grow and change and become more like your son Jesus with your help by the power of your Holy Spirit, and that we might be a blessing not only to the church, but also to the world around us. Father, the world that is desperately seeking for answers and looking for them in all the wrong places, my heart breaks. And I'm sure, Father, that yours does too. And so as we, as we arm ourselves and equip ourselves with the Word of God, that that Word might be dispensed lovingly care, and with great care. 
pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.